in our series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline. This episode has well-being as its focus, and specifically the emergence of a new global movement that has adopted well-being, both on an individual and on a societal level, as its core objective. FASTA and the EHFF both have a keen interest in redirecting national and global economic goals away from GDP growth as an end of itself and towards well-being. In FASTA's case, this interest dates to FASTA's founding in 1998, and indeed still further back to the publication of our late co-founder Richard Douthwaite's book The Growth Illusion in 1992. It's now being pursued by our Beyond GDP Working Group. EHFF, for its part, recognises the lack of sustainability of current health systems, and in doing so, also sees the holistic nature of health and the impact of other societal systems on health and well-being. The transformational change needed will have to engage many other aspects of society, including, for example, the environment, education, and particularly the economic system. Recent years has seen a major upsurge of interest in well-being-oriented economies, not just from individuals and organisations around the globe, but also from some governments. Indeed, a global alliance was formed two years ago called the Well-Being Economy Alliance. Both FASTA and EHFF have recently joined this alliance. In this podcast, we'll be hearing David Somek, who's the Network Director of the EHFF, interviewing Stuart Wallace, who's one of the co-founders of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and is currently the chairperson of its board. We go over now to their interview. I'm very happy to be talking to Stuart Wallace, who's the chair of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. I'm David Somek, Network Director of the European Health Futures Forum, a close partner of FASTA. And the reason I'm talking to Stuart is that both our organizations have an interest in the idea of alternative measures within a society of determining well-being. For a long time now, there's been an interest in moving away from GDP as the standard measure, as it doesn't reflect the needs of society as a whole. So therefore, I was very interested indeed to discover the existence of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and delighted to be able to talk to the chair. So, Stuart, tell me about your organisation. Thank you, David. Excellent to be with you today. Even before the COVID crisis, I think there's a growing awareness in many sectors of society and in many countries for the need for a different economic system. The way I characterize the current economic system, which you can argue has worked well for certain groups of people, um, you can see how health has improved in parts of the world, etc. But I would argue it's overrun its course. And there's four interlinked and systemic problems with the current economic system. I call them the four U's. The current system, prevailing system, is unsustainable, it's unfair, it's unstable, and it makes too many people unhappy. I 
could explain lots more about that, but I think it's much more important to go on to what people want because we know now from polling that less than a fifth of people, when they're polled, the Audemars Trust Barometer, which polls people in 32 countries and about over 30,000 people every year, showed in its recent one that less than one in five people believe the economic system is working for them anymore. There's widespread view that this system is broken. And when you ask people what they need, whether it's through surveys or all sorts of different means, and this is true right across the world, you find a number of common ground, which we think is best reflected in what we call a well-being economy. Uh, that is an economy that works well for both humans and for the planet. It's as simple as that. It's designed to increase human well-being and to improve the well-being of the natural world and the planet. So the five things that you see that people absolutely want, they want a greater focus on meeting human needs as opposed to human wants. It's not saying wants aren't important, but the first thing you need to do for all humans on, on the earth is to meet their basic needs. So people have enough to live on, uh, they have access to education, to the right health care, all those things that we would see as fundamental human needs. The second thing is that the system reveres the natural world we've got to tackle the crises of biodiversity loss, of climate change, and we need a switch to seeing ourselves as being not dominating nature, but being a part of nature and depending on it and needing to do everything in our power to improve it. The third thing is it's much fairer. People you know, aim for the Scandinavian levels of fairness in society, and, and that's about fairness, not just in income, but in wealth, in power, and many other dimensions. The fourth thing is that our institutions need to be repurposed to serve the common good. So they may still need to make a profit, but their purpose is wider than the profit. It's something to do with the good of society. And we need to repurpose, whether it's our businesses or our other institutions, we need to have a focus of all our institutions on the common good. And then lastly, but still very importantly, People need to feel valuable, they need to feel that their voices are heard, and they need to have a sense of control. And that sense of feeling valuable, yes, things like having enough income is really important, but if you're not also feeling you're contributing, you've got a wider purpose, then that still can lead to dissatisfaction. So it's about people feeling connected and being able to participate in their economy. Now, those are pretty common when you look at what people need and say they want, those are the things that come up. And we think they characterize a well-being economy. And as I say, a well-being economy is one where you design it to have greater equality. You design it to not cause pollution. So you're not doing what we do at the minute, where you're spending a huge amount of money trying to fix all the various harms, whether environmental harms or inequality harms that you've caused in the first place by your economic system. So it's a very different approach. Now, why did we set up We All, um, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance? I just need to divert briefly back to my time as the director of the New Economics Foundation in London. And we had a very clear model of change, which was to do really good policy, really good research, to lobby effectively, to communicate in fun and inspiring ways, but serious ways as well and to join others in campaigning. So we use both an insider and an outsider method of operating. And we also worked to demonstrate our ideas in practice and had our own consultancy company, etc. 
Now, we judged to be a very successful organisation. We helped convince the coalition government of um, the Conservatives and the Liberals in 2010 to start measuring. It wasn't just us. It was together with Layard and various other groups, but it was a group of four or five organisations that convinced that coalition to start measuring well-being as a headline measure, which we thought was a big success. We claimed to have played quite a role in all sorts of other policy changes. But did we change the economic system? No, we didn't. And so we went back to really first principles and said, let's look at successful system changes. Let's look at the conditions you need. Now, all those things, we're talking about good research, communication, lobbying, campaigning, demonstrating stuff in practice, they're all necessary, but they're not sufficient. And we found that there are three other things needed for successful system change. The first of those three is that people join together to create, in effect, a new power base, a group, enough people calling for something different. And they join together across sectors, so it's not just one sector, it's not just civil society, it's civil society with businesses, with environmental groups, um, with climate change activists, etc. They join together across levels, so it's not bottom-up or top-down, it's both. And they join together across geographies. And that, when you look at success, whether you look at the civil rights movement or you look at uh, the move to Keynesianism in mid-20th century or the move to neoliberalism in late 20th century, the same pattern of different groups working together. There are differences. Obviously, the neoliberal project was a much more of elite groups joining together. But there is that common thread to work together far more effectively to create a new power base. The second thing one needs to do is to tell a new story. It's not enough just to do like I did earlier and say, this system's broken, it's unsustainable, etc. We've actually got to say what we do want, what's a more positive vision for how we live. And the third thing one has to do is to make the underlying knowledge and the economics of a system, if we're talking about an economic system, much more accessible to people, whether they're policymakers or the general public, and much more coherent. So there's reams of research about well-being, about uh, all sorts of aspects of a different economy, or the way I describe. But they're often in bits, they're often in very good but quite learned papers. And actually, one needs to be able to communicate in a way that if you're a mayor of a new city and you want to run that city differently, or you're a finance minister of a country, or a first minister or a prime minister of a country, and you want to implement a well-being economy, then where do you go? Where do you get your information? Where is it the experience pulled together? And so we saw those being the key gaps. Now, while I was still at NEF, I, at New Economics Foundation, one of the things we did was set up, instigate, and then fledge something called the New Economy Organizers Network, which has been a group that's been doing some of those things in the UK. But then I left NEF, I retired, I did academic work and looked after the 20 acres my wife and I work on down here in Devon, did some local economy work, got involved in local charities. And then Trump got elected, Brexit happened, and I thought, I'm having a lovely life, but I can't just sit here. Why? Things seem to be getting worse. We seem to be going in the wrong direction in a whole range of places. And there's far more one could say than just those two events. And so I got together with other key allies, other organisations and said, look, the time now is for us to start collaborating in a way that wasn't very always possible before. 
when we tried it before, we found that the so-called progressive sectors of civil society particularly often were disagreeing over quite minor policy points or were looking after their funding sources in a sort of you know, necessary way to their own survival, but weren't working as one coherent whole. And wasn't because they're about they're very good organizations, but people didn't quite see the need to collaborate in the way that we now see that, that need. And this is why a whole range of organizations came together. Um, I started collaborating with Catherine Trebek and somebody called Lorenzo Fiamonti, who was a professor in South Africa, who then went on to be the education minister in Italy briefly. Those two had worked on the Wellbeing Economy Governments Initiative. I'll say a bit more about in a minute. We collaborated with the people who'd been running the New Economy and Social Innovation Forum, which was the biggest gathering of new economy organizations in Malaga, in Spain, and said, well, why don't you come into this? Why don't we all work together? There was a group that had gone to Bhutan called the Alliance of Sustainability and Prosperity that I was a member of. There was a group called Leading for Wellbeing being led out of Fordham University and a whole group, a lot of groups in the US. And we brought all those groups together. So it was a coming together. So we all has many mothers. I played a sort of coordinating role getting, getting some of that going, but it's been many of us who've birthed this organization. So why we brought it together was literally to do those three things I said were still missing. The need for collaboration across levels, across sectors, across geographies of all sorts of types of organizations the need to tell a positive new story and the need to make the knowledge and evidence base of a well-being economy far more coherent and accessible. So that was why we set up We All. And we're now just over two and a half years old and we're still building this thing as we, whatever analogy, I don't quite like the flying analogy, but um, it does feel like we're in the air suspended and adding bits as we go. Um, but that's how we're a sustainable flying machine anyway so that's a bit about how we all got going and I can say a bit more about what we've achieved um, if that's useful yes I was going to say as you say it's a relatively young organization although it has much older roots and it came together as you say prompted by an alarming shift if you can call it that in the world which i suppose is symptomatic of a number of uh, similar seismic phenomena but i'm very sympathetic to what you were describing about the the difficulties that an organization that wants to bring people together can face because i've seen it from our direction as well i think it's the biggest challenge we have in terms of system change is to help people work together and and forget about the minor uh, things that uh, really have caused fragmentation in the past haven't they yeah. But uh, tell me then, just let's spend a couple of minutes talking about where you feel uh, the Alliance is going and what, what you feel really good about, apart from just bringing it into existence. Yeah. I think I'll probably mention three or four things, just very briefly, though. The first is just how many people have been prepared to collaborate. And this is, you know, I would never have believed this possible five years ago as for the reasons we just talked about. What we've found is that if you try and seek collaboration, not on detailed policies, but on values and on goals, you know, the goals of the well-being economy that I talked about earlier, 
you t if you focus at the level of goals, principles, and values, it's far easier to get people to work together. And our whole motto has been togetherness over disagreement. In other words, togetherness uh, is more important than consensus on the detail. And we brought to date about 135 global organizations, some small, some very big, some of the movements, some coalitions, some alliances, some individual organizations, some businesses, a whole range of 135 organizations. We're heading, it's growing every week, so we're going to celebrate the 150 mark um, very soon, I hope. Um, we brought together separately to these organizations about 100 academics in a whole range of ways, um, many of global renown. Then for our citizens network, we've um, got about 1,500 global change makers who are individuals in different countries trying to change the system who are working together. That's still very young, but we think it's got huge potential to grow. We've got a thriving youth movement and we've developed hubs, uh, which is these cross-sectoral groups of policy actors in a range of countries. So just in terms of sheer complexity and rapid growth, that in itself has been an achievement. But what's been beautiful is the way all sorts of connections have been made and all sorts of people are working together as a result of us making those connections, but independent of us. We call ourselves in the team who are doing a lot of the, in effect, paid work, because we've got masses of people volunteering in all these different capacities, we call ourselves amplifiers, because our, our role is not to manage this, not to duplicate. What we're trying to do is to amplify what's already going on, to connect, to make, to bring people together, not to try and compete, not to try and do things that other people are doing. That's the first thing to say. So we've just, we've managed to build an organization as surprising complexity in a short period of time. The second thing, which I think is far more important, though the first is part of it, is I think we've been part of, it's not us only, and it never will be us only, this is many of this whole basis, there'll be lots of other organizations outside WHEEL that we will collaborate with, but they won't even become members. But the idea of a well-being economy there's the idea of well-being has been around a long time, but the much more specific idea of a well-being economy has really gained traction. It has been far more about it in the media. We've been responsible for some of that. We've been giving talks and seminars and um, social media and all sorts of other blogs across all the continents. So there's been a phenomenal interest, and it's even getting greater post the um, COVID or during the COVID crisis, but not post it, sadly, at this moment. Can but, I interrupt there just, yeah. to, just to ask, because I was curious about this. You make the point, the idea of a, a well-being economy or having alternatives to GDP as a measure of, of well-being in society has been around a while. But as you say, it does seem very clear that quite recently in the time span that you set up your organization, that in a sense you were kind of, just as you defined yourselves as being kind of catalysts, you know, rather than organizers. So you're kind of riding a wave that you yes. spotted. Yeah, and, we're both riding and, and helping amplify it, basically. Yeah, mm. But and, do, you, do you have a view of, of how that's come about, that more yes. recent interest? I think the idea of beyond GDP measures has been around, as you say, a really long time. You know, Net New Economics Foundation played a part in that. You had the Sarkozy Sen Commission in France, for example. So there's lots of examples where people have been trying to push it. But what I think 
has been realized more widely is just changing the measure even though very important actually isn't enough and you won't get the impetus to change the measure before some other fundamentals change so why even though the coalition government under Clegg and Cameron measured well-being and trained huge numbers of civil servants it never really had traction because the whole everything else in the economy was still functioning on a GDP growth model rather than the fundamentals being changed so now that people are seeing that the fundamentals aren't working and you're seeing that very widely then the need for economic system change is really in the sense that this system however you define it isn't working for so many people anymore is part of the reason there's a, a wish the second thing is new economics foundation many people are pushing concepts of a new economy or a regenerative economy there's many different terms but I think there's been a sort of consensus coming around that the term well-being economy actually works better for most people because it links to people's health, it links to the sort of work yourselves are doing as an organisation. Um, you can talk about the health and the environment. So the concept of both individual, collective and planetary well-being works for people. It's communicable, it's positive and it works. So those are all reasons, I think, why that wave was starting, but I think we can also say that we have managed to amplify that quite successfully as well. So it's both uh, things. And then the third thing I think I would mention, particularly on what is Catherine and Lorenzo, I mentioned have been working with well around the idea of a well-being economy governments, um, which is a group of governments that are looking to promote a well-being economy for some time, but. Mm -hmm. With the setting up of WEAL and with their work continuing, we did manage to instigate that now as a formal organisation, um, which has at the minute four members, member countries, New Zealand, Iceland, Scotland and Wales, and a secretariat run by the chief economist of Scotland, um, Dr Gary Gillespie, and with big support by the prime ministers or first ministers of those countries. And that may have happened anyway, but we all as being able to really support that work behind the scenes in Scotland, for example, we in the same time period we've got we created an independent charity, We All Scotland, that's brought together all sorts of sections of society. The First Minister of Scotland talked at our conference there in January and said how important what we all, both globally and We All Scotland, have been doing in actually getting the Scottish Government to focus on well-being and getting the idea that this was so important. So that, I think, has been a, a real success. And we see a number now of other governments really interested in joining it, including potentially one or two big ones. There's some way, way to go on some of those, but some are likely, we're likely to see one or two countries joining the current four in the next two or three months, and then probably another four or five in the next year, as I say, including potentially some big economies. I'm very interested indeed in uh, this well-being economy government group. Can you just say very briefly how it operates? I mean, what's it doing that is different to what the, the wheel organization is doing? The key thing is that this is an intergovernmental partnership. So we all supports behind the scenes, but it is run literally by those governments. And what it's doing is it they are 
discussing how you can best implement a well-being economy and tackle the sort of problems, the really quite tricky problems they face in some of those economies, like how do you both create new jobs, especially post-COVID, and do so in a sustainable way? You know, how does Scotland get out from under its oil economy? What are the ways, uh, the best ways forward um, for that? And it's how do you, and it's how you simultaneously, as I say, create good jobs and decarbonize and have a more viable economy. So they have regular policy labs that we um, support. The OECD also supports. They or have already, you know, Scotland has developed a well-being economy framework. One can see if, you're in, if people are interested in following up Nicola Sturgeon's TED talk, which has been seen a huge number of times where she sets out her vision for a well-being economy for Scotland. New Zealand has implemented the first well-being economy budget, which operates in a very different way from normal budgets. It focuses on the objectives environmentally. It covers things like um, child mental health as well. It fits, it looks at all those different dimensions of well-being you need in a modern economy, and it has met. It sets up a measure, sets of measures, to judge um, how effective its interventions are being. So it's planning out a different type of economy. Similarly, Iceland has developed a whole set of well-being economy indices. Then the role of growth becomes, when it's relevant, one of the means of achieving those objectives. But they cover all the issues like fairness, etc. So you set out to say how do you achieve an economy that's much fairer, that's providing enough jobs, that's decarbonizing and looking after the environment. And then almost the growth becomes a so almost the output. It's not it's sometimes a means to an end, but it's how you then see what growth you can actually afford while you're trying to meet your policy objectives rather than the other way around. Right. Because um, that's that's the issue, isn't it? That it's yeah. uh, kind of reversal really of the of the previous approach which is yeah. is very encouraging but uh, because i'm conscious of time can we can we then i'm very interested with the new coalition government in ireland whether there's some possibility that having a connection with we all could help us because of your experience and your experience in setting up we go and so on to maybe start to influence things in ireland also because it seems to me there is from what i understand there is a a sense that uh, there's a public interest in something like that obviously you and your organizations know the irish situation far better than me but it with the new coalition government with the COVID crisis and where one is, it seems like it could be a really good time. And I know that my colleagues, Catherine Trebek, who's our influencing lead, for example, has been in contact with um, some people who are in contact with the, the new Irish government. So those discussions are starting. But the other thing I think could, that could be really interesting is just like we said that in Scotland, it helped by bringing all sorts of organisations together in a a charitable type organization doesn't have to be a check can be non-charitable but bringing together an irish hub could be a really good time to do that i think at this stage and you know both yourselves and faster um, for instance plus some of the academics we know in ireland it could seem like getting that a grouping together who are both influencing and pushing for a well-being economy in Ireland would seem like a really good time and the broader grouping the better so if one's able to bring certain Irish businesses in 
some of the finance sector, some of the environmental people, if that's possible, health professionals, then you, that would be a very interesting supporting network. And then the other thing that can happen is trying to get a whole lot of citizens involved. And, and the We All Citizen platform is one way of doing it to support the hub. So we see where it's working best is where you've got active citizens, you've got policy actors at all sorts of different levels from community groups up to ones who are operating at sort of into, at the governmental level um, working together, plus then communication going on with civil servants in those governments and outreach from current members of the WeGo partnership and from we all. And I think it's something that would need to have the energy coming from people in Ireland to make it possible because one of the things we all one of the constraints we face is funding it's quite difficult for funding getting funding to change the economic system but the other is just now there's such interest in the well-being economy we're finding out the demands on us are running well ahead of our capacity so we try and help but we more and more rely on people in a particular place to do a lot of the heavy lifting themselves. So there has to be a, a wish to do that amongst enough Irish partners. But we would give all the support we could in terms of information, in terms of contacts, in terms of those sort of things. And we'd love to see both a thriving Irish hub and Ireland coming in to the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership. Stuart, it's been delightful talking to you today. And really, I think you've ended on a note that will make people very interested to carry on a conversation in, in this Good. area so thank you very much it's a pleasure david thank you that was david somek the network director of the ehff interviewing stuart wallace who was a founder of the new economics foundation and is now the chair of the well-being economy alliance a burning question for many people now is how we can best cultivate well-being in a context of decreasing economic productivity in the interview just now, we heard that GDP growth should be considered as a means to an end rather than an end in itself. But what if, as many energy analysts and increasingly a number of economists are arguing, continual aggregate GDP growth is actually no longer possible because of resource limits? It's interesting in this context to note that according to a recent study, low-income people in a number of countries which introduced social protection policies, such as emergency relief payments during the lockdown, actually experienced an increase in their overall well-being, despite the economic contraction associated with the lockdown. It seems that there are useful lessons that could be learned for achieving a successful well-being-oriented economy in a world of constrained resources, but we'll leave further discussion of that to a future podcast. If you found this podcast interesting, please check out the others in our series, Bridging the Gaps and Beyond the Obvious. You may also wish to help promote them by sharing them on social media. Many thanks to Stuart Wallace and David Somek for their interview. And thanks also to Lee Shikelli for our music on the harp. Gura mil mahagav galair agus gudeshev slán. Thank you.